by 1600, the English control in Ireland is all but gone. Hello and welcome to The Irish at War. I'm your host, David Cummins. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Jim O'Neill from Queen's University, Belfast, about the Nine Years' War. I want to say a massive big thank you to everybody who listened, liked, retweeted and shared and left reviews on last week's podcast with Damien Shields on the Irish in the American Civil War. Thank you so much for that. It really means a lot that you people are enjoying the work that I'm putting out. Thank you to everybody who liked and left a review of the podcast on iTunes and on SoundCloud also. And as always, thank you so much to everybody, to all my followers on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and theirishwar.com. Your likes, retweets, and comments mean the world to me, so thank you so much for that. And I'd like to thank those of you who became a patron of this podcast. Thank you so much for your generosity It really means a lot to me that you would donate your hard-earned money to me doing this. So thank you so much. And finally, the whole world is still in the grips of this COVID-19 pandemic. Please stay safe, stay isolated, talk to your loved ones, wash your hands, and hopefully this will all be over shortly. And when it is, well, we'll be able to have the crack again. And that's what everybody wants. But enough of all that. Let's get to the good stuff. So I'll hand you over to Dr. Jim O'Neill on the Nine Years' War. Okay, Jim, just give us a a brief introduction to yourself, your background, and why it was the Nine Years' War that really captured your attention. Well, to tell you the truth, it was sort of by mistake. I had been working in the archaeology department in the Environment Heritage Service, that's like the government department in Northern Ireland, uh, doing contract archaeology. And I was more looking at archaeology and no planning, no for development, that sort of thing. And when I was doing that, I realized that there was nothing representing battlefields. And so I started putting together this battlefield register for the department. So it came in up to like 300 sites. Uh, and then I was working with a colleague and the opportunity came up to do some metal detecting, no targeted metal detecting survey, to see just what the archaeological horizon was for these sites. And we decided that which site needed done the most, which would turn up most. So literally picked the yellow, well, the yellow Ford from 1598. It's down uh, just north of Armagh. And did target, targeted metal detecting on it and came up with some good results. And that's how I started to focus on the Nine Years' War. And the more I looked at it, the more I was like, this doesn't ring. The, the way the narrative was, it just didn't ring true. It, there was something wrong with it. It just, especially it stunk because you're reading books like Elizabeth's Irish War by Sarah Falls. And it was busy, the Irish win, 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 win. And then you had about 1600 and it's lose, 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 lose. And then they get overthrown. And it's almost written like a fait accompli. Like, well, of course they lost because they were Irish. That's almost the way it's written. And that just didn't, that, that just stunk. So I just looked at it more. And then I got the opportunity to leave work and I've been doing um, 
a part-time degree in Queen's University, Belfast, uh, doing that while I was working. And so I was using the nine years war work from the archaeological survey to go through the history degree. And so the more and more I looked at it, and the history degree worked out quite well. And so I said, right, I might actually just take this a bit further and got the opportunity to leave work and take up a master's in Queen's. And of course, stick to what you're good at, or maybe just lazy and one or the other. And I kept looking at the nine years work for the master's. And then I got into the PhD program. And the PhD program was literally, I managed to get away with looking at the military side of the nine years war because, believe it or not, when you start to look at it, there only was a few books that actually dealt with it, and none of them just dealt with the Nine Years' War. None of them. The touchstone reference was, again, Cyril Falls' uh, Elizabeth Irish Wars, and it was written from a very humanist perspective. Like, in one bit, he actually calls Femme Q. O'Byrne, who's the Lord of Wicklow. Falls called, in his own words, not reported, but in his own words, called him, like, a base savage, and you're like, this is sort of bad stuff. But there's nothing else to go to. There were bits and pieces. You had the um, G.A. Hayes McCoy's work, of course, which is sort of like the bedrock of all well, Irish military history. Mm-hmm. But again, it only took pieces out. And I was like, there's a gap in this. And so I put in the proposal for the PhD, looking at the really military aspects of the Nine Years' War. And thankfully, Queen's agreed it, and that formed the basis of all this work. Uh, and, and luckily enough, I managed to get it all the way through. And with the help of uh, Dr. Harm Morgan and University College Cork, and the Arts Research Council got to get it all the way to the point where it published in 2017 the book of Nine Years War. Excellent. Geez, that's uh, that's quite a journey, I suppose. But yeah, you're right. There's such a lack of information and books uh, on the Nine Years War. It was a real shocker. It was a real shocker. The, 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 a good friend of mine, a colleague I met in UCC, uh, Dr. Ruth Cumming, she's out in Liverpool Hope now, and she was doing work on... And I just recently published on the Peelsman in the Nine Years' War. And it was such an open goal that we were working in the same subject and still didn't stand on each other's toes. There was so much space to work in. And we found this was amazing. There's like, there only is a few keystone wars you know, that appear throughout Irish history. You know, you've got 1798, and then you got the War of the Three Kings, and the whole 1640 thing, and the Wedgemite Wars. And we're saying, there's a perfect block here that's missing. And so, like I said, it was a wide open goal. Um, and so you, the, the breadth you, they got to go and work on and the ideas to work on, you weren't standing on anyone's toes because it was just all fresh ground, which yeah. is great for us. Yeah, definitely. That's a, it's a dream PhD, I suppose. Oh, God, yeah. But yeah, I suppose, and especially because, you know, in schools we all learn about Hugh O'Neill, the Battle of Kinsale, the Flight of the Earls, but after that there's just nothing. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's pretty interesting. So for those who might actually just have those base levels of information on the Nine Years' War. Do you want to just give us, I know it's almost 10 years long, but do you want to give us a, a brief summary of the, the Nine Years' War? Yeah, that, that's no problem. The, um, okay, for one thing, they said the Nine Years' War, but it's actually 10 years long. It's, yes, I saw that. I was like, hang on a second. That actually wanted to be my first question. I was like, first of all, why is it the Nine Years' War when it's actually 10? Um, it was actually, uh, it was key, um, when the first people started, more modern historians started writing about it, it was coined in the 19th century, because they thought that the war actually started in 1594, um, at the Battle of the Fort of the Biscuits in Fermanagh. But when you look closely at it, certainly Hiram Morgan's work, um, in his book, The Thrones Rebellion, 
he was looking at it more starting around in 1583, so I was looking at that. And what you see is the perception from the English was they were fighting a local war, but really when you started to examine it more in detail, you realise that the war was started in several phases. Um, and you have Hugh O'Neill, who... And this is still disputed. There's still the historians um, that would argue that he was still on the crime side and got dragged unwillingly in the war. I would not ascribe to that. I would ascribe that there's a whole phase of proxy war, or though O'Neill uh, or Tyrone was seen to be on the crime side and always been the Queen's man up until then, he was actually fighting this proxy war using his son-in-law, Hugh Maguire and Fermanagh, to distract English military resources in a fighting war, a nice obvious war in Fermanagh and Northern Connacht, while Tyrone basically fought this political war of intimidation and coercion, uh, suppressing Irish lords that were allied to the English and Eastern Ulster. So that, now this phase of proxy war goes through 1593, 1594, and the fact is that no one pays attention to the fact that Maguire wasn't a strong military force until O'Neill reinforced him. He's actually fighting with O'Neill's troops. No, as in commanding O'Neill's troops that were sent to him under the command of Tyrone's brother, Cormac Barron. And so they they were doing the fighting in Connacht in 1593, and they were the ones that um, were besieging Enniskillen. Uh, Enniskillen was the Maguire Castle, but it had fallen to uh, Crown troops in February 1594. And then it was pretty much quickly put under siege by uh, Maguire and Conrad Barron, um, which led to this relief column that was attacked at the Fort of the Biscuits in August 1594. And there was everything was saying that these were troops sent by O'Neill. O'Neill was involved, but it was almost like the Crown couldn't actually get their head around the fact that their guy was actually masterminding this from the very beginning. And it's only when he is compelled into open action in February 1595. Then their eyes are fully open. They're like, hold on, we've just been taken for a ride for the last couple of years. And by the time they realise they're in a war, O'Neill has essentially got command of the entire north. And what he's done, he's put together this confederation of Irish lords, which again, the English have a very hard time getting their head around because they've always been used to the division. Now, you've always had parochial ideas of the Irish lords and self-interested he had the O'Donnells look after the O'Donnells and the O'Neills look after the O'Neills and with this unity that's how the English always managed to govern but O'Neill managed to actually transcend that and creates this confederation that brings in O'Donnell that brings in the McMahons that brings in the O'Rourke and with this confederation all of a sudden the English don't really know what to do and more with this confederation isn't just a northern confederation you've got Femme Hugh and Wicklow and they just, the English just don't know what to do. They don't know how to act. So they fall back on old methods of hosting, where they send an army to wherever the trouble spot is, and they go, that'll sort them out. But the fact is, if you have a confederation that has a level of operational sophistication, that they can have things done in Northern Connacht that will affect the situation in Armagh, which will affect the situation in Wicklow. This sort of sophisticated network and literally a, a strategy that went beyond you know, isolated theatres like in, in parts of Ireland that they just can't understand and the English response is constantly wrong for them. 
from 1583 all the way to 1600 and that allowed the war to progress from this proxy war in 1583 to 94. Then you have uh, Tyrone in open action from 1595 all the way through to where the war is pressed south. And as the war presses south, O'Neill takes on more allies in the Midlands and more and more Irish lords become part of the Confederation so that by half 1598 and you have the great disaster of, uh, well, disaster for the English, it was quite, quite a stellar victory for O'Neill at uh, the Yellow Ford in Armagh in 1598, that by that stage, English control in Ireland is basically teeter on the point of collapse that hadn't been seen before. And to tell you the truth, even into the modern day, hadn't been realised how weak the English position was by 1600. The English control in Ireland is all but gone, apart from the, the, the cities and towns. And then, of course, uh, we hit 1600 and 1601, Battle of Kinsale, and we all know how that goes on. Oh, God, don't we just? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then most people think that that's the end, but the war drags on for another two years, um, mm-hmm. but... Ultimately, that's kind of the, the high watermark uh, of O'Neill's power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so you've mentioned some of the main characters. You got Hugh O'Neill, Hugh O'Donnell. So I was just wondering if you could go into those a little bit more and then maybe talk about the, the main English characters in this, the Earl of Essex and Mountjoy himself. Um, yeah, but you have on Tyrone's side, this confederation, again, it, it transcends the pro-realism that the English had a much easier time dealing with. It's called divide and conquer. It's, no, it's almost cliche, but that's exactly how it works. O'Neill had brought in, by marriage and alliance, he had uh, this unprecedented alliance with the O'Donnells, um, Hugh O'Donnell and Turcamo. Um, you had uh, Bran O'Rourke uh, in Comet. Um, you had uh, Hugh Maguire in Fermanagh. Um, more significantly, and certainly when it comes to writing uh, history in the North, James McSorley MacDonald, who's the Scots alliances, which is hugely important for maintaining the war. And as they move further south, they pick up, well, from the very start, you have uh, Ben Shieldburn in Wicklow, then the Cavanaghs, and then you have the Irish Lords in the Midlands, and that increases throughout the war as they gain more alliances, and power attracts power, and success attracts um, alliances, and all the way down into Munster, where you have um, Florence McCarthy, which is slightly uh, not the best ally to have, but it was in the last one or less. And... Um, James Fitzthomas is Sugan or Desmond, uh, and, and, and then with the many other lords, but these are the main players. Reigns against that, we have a whole series of English lord deputies and uh, uh, English generals, some of a real stellar cast from English history that sort of just gets swallowed by Ireland. You have Lord Deputy uh, Fitzwilliam, he's around at the very start. Um, he's an absolute shyster, he's busy getting it for himself and making cash. And, at the time, that sort of was the dumb thing for English Lord Deputies here. But he has absolutely no ability to contain this. And in fact, it's actually probably one of the reasons that it kicks off in the first place. Um, and he's replaced by um, Lord Deputy Russell, who comes in literally days after the defeat of the army in the Fort of the Biscuits in 1594. And he's going to come in and he's going to sort it out. And he's brought in with uh, this real hero from the English actions in the Low Countries, uh, Sir John Norris, and sort of the, Russell is the political deputy, but the military commander, 
is Norris, and they don't get on, to say the least. So you have a fractured command structure right from the very start. But Norris also, because he's in military command, he never gets his head around the fact that the Irish are coordinated and have an alliance that goes beyond what they've seen before. And he's constantly saying, oh, but they're having ceasefires, we're near there, they're asking for ceasefire. But the only time to ever really ask for ceasefires is for his own benefit. Just because, you also got to understand, just because they're not shooting you, doesn't mean you're not still at war. War is more than just about shooting things. War is political. Norris never gets his head around that, and um, he's constantly outmaneuvered by Tyrone and his allies. Russell, he struggles along. He has this vendetta against MQ, which he totally takes his eye off the ball throughout um, 1595, 96, up into 97, until eventually he's replaced uh, by this uh, new Lord Deputy. Uh, Lord Deputy Burr, and Burr, as you can imagine, is this really quite belligerent character. He comes in in 1597, he goes, right, we're going to go north, and we're going to take this by the scruff of the neck, and we're going to basically show these Irish his boss, and thinks that there's this strong-armed military answer. And again, he charges into Ulster, and uh, seems to make great progress at the start, and builds this fort on the Blackwater and fit in the summer of 1597. But he's so belligerent that he wants to be storming across, across Blackwater and the Tyrone. But again, he doesn't have the forces. And the fact is that his belligerence is, is predictable. And Tyrone uh, and his alliances actually manipulate that. I'll give an example of that. Burr launches this campaign, this two-pronged campaign, into Ulster in the summer of 1597. Uh, and he says, sends Sir Conius Clifford up the west coast up to try and get through Ballyshannon. And the whole idea is to have this two-pronged advance that would meet up in Derry. And it gets absolutely taken apart because of its predictability. What Tyrone does is that he checks Burr on the Blackwater. And he checks Clifford at Ballyshannon. And then he sends one of his major captains, a Captain Terrell, in behind the lines of Burr and starts raiding in Monaghan and the Peel. And this forces Burr's hand. Burr can't stay on the Blackwater while the Peel's starting to get raided. So he forces Burr to fall back without telling Clifford, which leaves Clifford exposed. And then all the forces that were holding Burr stream westwards and almost trap the English army against uh, the coast at Ballyshannon. And they just barely get out. They barely escape out of pure luck that Tyrone's forces are closing in um, on the retreat from Valley Shannon, Clifford's men are literally run out of gunpowder, they're forced back onto their pike stand, and O'Neill's men are closing in for the kill until it rains. And when it rains, it puts out all the firearms that they're using are matchlocks, which is basically a, a smoldering match cord lights the gunpowder. So when all the matches are put out by the rain, essentially the rain stops play and Clifford's men actually managed to escape. If it hadn't been for that, the English army in the West would have been absolutely annihilated. But what you can see is that by the sophisticated ability to cooperate beyond knowing different theatres, is that they, the English armies, no matter their strength, are totally out of their depth because there's more to fighting wars than just military strength. It's about operational sophistication and strategy and being able to manipulate being having the right strength at the right place at the right time, which I think just can't get their head around. And so, luckily for 
like some officers write later that lucky that Burr actually gets sick when he goes back and he dies of Irish ague. One of the officers that was with him, and it's, thank God Burr died because if he hadn't, it would have been the death of all of us. No, this is belligerent. I think that he could solve everything with military force with destroying the army. So he died after 1997, and there's a bit of a hiatus. But that's where it was Burr that this fort that he left uh, up in the Blackwater becomes a hostage to fit that uh, O'Neill manages to manipulate again. He maintains the, the strategic initiative by having this hostage to fortune that he can make the English do what he wants because he has the levers to force their act. And it's because of this fort, then the English come up with this idea that after Burr died that they're going to land a large military force in the foil in O'Neill's rear, which is a fantastic plan. Ultimately, that's one of the plans that leads to success, uh, Ricky, for the English. And O'Neill can't have that, but O'Neill's not going to confront it with military force. So what he does is he places forces, he besieges the, the fort at the Blackwater, but doesn't take it because he needs an English response. So how does he actually deflect the landing in the foil is that he forces the English to send a supply convoy to his fort in the Blackwater, and he destroys it at the Yellow Ford. And because the English field armies destroyed the Yellow Ford, they can't send the landing, and the landing is then redirected to defend Dublin. So therefore, he totally deflects his landing without actually having the engages on land. Then, then of course, after after the Yellow Ford, just absolute panic. And then they said, why didn't Throne just charge on Dublin? Because Throne didn't know straight off the DC. He still thought there may still be the landing. They could have been on the way. So he couldn't just charge there. But then there is near panic in Dublin. They're like, oh my God, this is, there was nothing left. The, the army, like he destroyed half the main field army. And Bagnall was killed. Uh, Marshal Bagnall is Tyrone's brother-in-law. Well, former brother-in-law. Uh, Tyrone then married almost. Some would say for love, I personally would say it was spite. Bagnall's name except there, much against Bagnall's uh, wishes. But by 1596, Mabel, who was many, many years uh, Tyrone's junior, she died. But Bagnall had nothing but loathing for uh, Tyrone, so he was more than happy to lead this army north of the Yellow Ford. And he was still shot in the head during the Battle of the Yellow Ford. So you have Dublin totally exposed, but Tyrone can't charge south. Then they look around and say, right, who can rescue the English position in Ireland? Because at the minute, it looked like it was lost. And so they turned to this great favourite of Elizabeth and uh, famous general, uh, the Earl of Essex. Uh, and as far as they're concerned, Essex is going to put everything right. And he sent over uh, 1599. And as far as they're concerned, he will put everything right. They expand the army. Uh, the largest army they've ever seen, um, 16,000, I think they expanded to. And he's, he's the man to get it done. He's the favourite. He's got this history. He's the hero. The, the raid on Kid is in 1596. And uh, he's going to fix it all. And he does the absolute opposite. He makes the most appalling method. Instead of, he's given this great expansion in the army to kick on to run in the north. What he does, is he equivocate campaigns in the south into Munster for some strange reason? Munster, by the stage after the Yellow Ford, they had this rising in Munster that absolutely destroyed the uh, English plantations in Munster almost overnight. Essex's campaign started through there, and again, isn't really 
engaged by the Irish, he actually he besieges Kerry Castle because he decides this is a target I want to take. Because look, look at military progress. Look at me take this castle. And I've seen later historians say, but look, he took Kerry Castle. No one cared about Kerry Castle until until Essex decided he was going to take it. But it's almost like he needs this physical, this, this uh, a token. Now, I told you, look, look, look how much progress I'm making, look what I'm taking, but really what he's just doing is burning and squandering resources and lives. Because remember, troops die on campaign, far more by disease than shooting them, so as long as he has them in the field, it's just squandered. And he goes in this long march, three months, this long circular march, just wasting resources. He says he's taking people in and forcing the Irish this and forcing the Irish that, but really he's not achieving anything. And it slowly dawns on him, that no progress is being made, and then he starts blaming everyone but himself, essentially. And he complains that the army aren't fighting, they're not doing that, and he just sends them off to garrison, and then complains that they're in garrison. He's just so far out of his depth. It's tragic, almost. Uh, and he gets back to Dublin, and then he, he goes on these strange and odd campaigns the, the end of the Midlands to reinforce the forts at... Um, uh, Marabur and Philip, uh, um, Philip Town. It doesn't need to be done. Even the Queensland, you're doing the campaigns that a captain could do. Uh, and by the time he comes to realise that he has to go north, he doesn't have an army fit for purpose. Uh, and it ends up, as a, as a, the more well-known story goes, certainly if you've seen that, the private lives of Elizabeth and Essex, he eventually uh, meets O'Neill uh, and, and on the, off the borderlands. Agree the truce, and again, the truce is all the way through up to this point have always been the Germans' advantage. Just because they're not fighting doesn't mean it's not war. And again, Essex agrees this truce, abandons his post, goes to England to try and fight his cause, and then, of course, is imprisoned and later executed when he tries this strange coup against the Queen. So again, so much for Essex. He's out of the picture, and by the time you get to the start of 1600, you really have, like, how can... The position is so far lost. It's the people are looking around and going, there is nothing. The English have shot their boat. They sent the biggest army they've had in Ireland, and nothing has changed. In fact, it's got worse. And it gets to the point by the start of 1600, Tyrone marches from Ulster all the way in the Munster, um, on the south coast, where he looks, he's killed seal and marches past Cork. No one says him. No one even tries to engage him. And this is fine all the way until Elizabeth finally picks the right man for the job. She picks Lord Mountjoy. And he has a, brings a team with him that can get the job done. Some of them are absolute charmers. They're not nice people, some of them. But he's the right man for the job, and he realises, he's actually the first one to realise the kind of the Irish Confederation he's up against is, can't be dealt with no, as they've done before and then he decides that he actually takes a long hard look out and makes the kind of reforms that allows him to win but that was one of the English strengths is that they could keep losing they could, they'd lost generals and lord deputies and they went through essentially their deck of cards and they're like, right, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work. And then they got the right guy. And the right guy was my Yeah, it's very much um, not who can inflict the most damage, but rather who can 
suffer the most damage and still be able to crack on. Exactly, exactly. That's the thing. That's the, the Irish couldn't take that because mm-hmm. Irish power and Irish military and political power was tied in the same people. Yeah, they right. couldn't take those sort of losses. Yeah. So they could lose. The English could lose Bagel. Yeah, there's more where he came from. They could lose Burr. There was more where he came from. They could lose Norris. There's more where he came from. The Irish lose Femmeke and Wicklow, and that causes no shockwave because his political and military strength is gone and and sort of paralyzes the Irish in Wicklow for a while. And certainly they they do recover, but not to the same level as when Femmeke was there. Hugh Maguire is killed in this chance encounter at the start of uh, 1600 in Munster. And again, this causes a shockwave in Fermanagh that the Irish system of Thomasry doesn't work well with because they kill Maguire and then all of a sudden you have competing uh, claimants to the Lordship of Fermanagh. And then for, essentially you have Fermanagh taken out of the war and then it almost descends into almost a civil war between the Maguires to see who that schism damages the Irish politically and militarily that they don't really recover from and they've got no way to replace but the English do. And it's, that's, it's one of these tragedies of like, it was almost like failure in that sense. That yeah. The longer the war went on, the harder it would be for the Irish to recover. Yeah, I suppose if if we had lost Tyrone earlier on, this war would never have lasted as long. No. In no way, shape absolutely. or form. So, no, absolutely not. Talk to me then about Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone, and kind of just give us a bit of a background on him and how he kind of became the man who he is and why he went to lead this war against the English, even though, well, he was, you know, sponsored by the crown as a young man. He doesn't fit the very, the narrative of a great nationalist type leader. He doesn't fit the nationalist leader at all, to tell you the truth. And he's a very unlikely leader, to say the least. Like, he's on the losing side in a dynastic war, like his, his father and brother are killed, and they're on the losing side. So when Shane O'Neill is um, essentially in charge in Ulster. They're very much in the losing side. And Tyrone, is, as a young O'Neill, is made a ward uh, in the field and becomes a ward of the crown. Uh, and is brought up in English society in the field. But then, as you see the power of the O'Neill in the ascendant in Ulster, they just, English society, again, like I was saying about the whole divide and everything, they set up as a counter to the, the new O'Neill after Shane is Turlock Lineup O'Neill. And so they set O'Neill up as this counterbalance of is he the Queen's man in Ulster, so the check uh, the growth of uh, Turlock Lineup's power. And so he's Baron Dungama and then he's made the Earl of Tyrone. And yes, as people say, he does campaign in Munster during the Desmond Wars. And that's what a lot of people say that he's the Queen's man, the Queen's man. A lot of people are the Queen's man, but actually, but them. So that's not really an issue. But as uh, time goes on and he's, he's there to turn another after that, they start to see that the Crown will be making inroads into their power, into their uh, rights and privileges, uh, certainly with the breakup of the McMahon Lordship in Monaghan and the treatment of the O'Rourke's in Connacht. They start to see how the English would break up these large dynastic power blocks because if you break them up into smaller ones, they're much more easier to control. But possibly one of the key events which 
happened and it's totally outside their control is the Spanish Armada. Uh, when it's destroyed and it's broken up along the Irish coast in 1588, all of a sudden these connections are made to the Spanish court. These political connections that didn't, uh, that didn't previously exist. Certainly O'Neill has eight Spanish officers in Dungana from 1598. And then you start to see these uh, connections that with political power becomes military potential. And you see through the Catholic bishops, they start to seed almost like the Native Irish body politic with the idea that things didn't have, the English didn't need to be in charge. There was another option. And certainly with the behavior of the likes of Richard Bingham in Connacht and the breakup of the Lordship, they start, and this is the how do I get rich opportunism of Fitzwilliam and the uh, Bagnall pushing to try and get a governorship in, of Ulster, they start to realise that it's in their benefit in the long term. If they look at these Spanish options, and certainly you almost get this perfect storm of English encroachment, Spanish possibility of Spanish support, that you get this weird alchemy that they decide at some point and this is the best way that to throw off English, no, to, to secure their rights and patrimony of their lordship. The best option wasn't to stick with English, the best option was to, to go with the Spanish option. And that's where you start to see preparations happen. That's where you start to see um, O'Neill starts to get the weaponsmiths brought in from Scotland, he develops this gunpowder production in Dungannon and in Tyrone. And um, you see these preparations being made. And then when you start, you see an incursion uh, by the English, they send a Captain Willis, a sheriff, into Fermanagh. And he starts behaving. They start to see the, the early stages of what happened in Monaghan against the McMahons. And then they realize, yeah, this is just going to keep happening. And that's when O'Neill starts off this proxy war with Maguire, and that's where you start to see, that's where the flames start. But the English don't know, the English are totally unaware of the fact that there's this confederation uh, in the offing. And that's where Tyrone he has this, this confidence that it's shocking, actually, sometimes. The, um, you have this defeat of the supply column at the floor of the biscuits in Fermanagh, 1594. Mm-hmm. And a new Lord Deputy that's Russell is sent just days later. And Tyrone just turns up on his own, uh, unprotected. Non- they just turns up and say, here, I'll sort this out. Uh, it's just amazing, actually, the, the, uh, the confidence and the moxie, for one thing. But also there's a, a brutality and a coldness that, dement- that, that Tyrone doesn't think twice about. Um, one of the examples of that is that he, in 1593, when the Crown couldn't bring Maguire in, there was offers of this, that, and the other. So they decided to send a military expedition into Fermanagh to put down what they thought was just a local baroque. And so they sent Sir Henry Bagnall, but with support from Tyrone. Now that means Tyrone's got men on both sides. And so Tyrone eventually meets Bagnall in Fermanagh and essentially works any real effort 
for Brighton Road to take on Maguire. Um, they actually uh, can see Maguire the fortification. Uh, he has a fortified crossing at Lisgo, just south of Enniskillen. And Bagnall tries to come up with these plans. Well, we can't get across here. What if I send troops round the back, no, round the upper lockdown? And everybody says, no, you can't do that. For Maguire's too strong. And I said, well, what if I send off for extra troops? And he said, no, you can't leave me here just for Maguire. He's too strong with his, but he's too strong with Perron's own troops. But to maintain the deception, O'Neill says, right, well, we'll have to go north to cross at Balik. And so they go north at Balik. Um, and they find this other fortified crossing. But they've, O'Neill and O'Donnell, uh, Hugh O'Donnell offers to reinforce the position. And Tyrone tells him, no, don't reinforce. And he basically has it stocked with a lot of McSweeney's out of Tyrone. But it's a lot of old style troops, you know, the old um, Galloglass occupying these fortifications. Maguire doesn't intervene. See all the, all the, the firearm equipped troops and all the modern equipped troops that um, Maguire had uh, this school that were blocking the cross and said in a field. They're not there. They're not even close to there. And when they make the crossing, Tyrone actually spurs his own troops in and they slaughter the McSweeney's that are holding this crossing. They mm-hmm. kill probably almost 300 of them. But this maintains the facade. This, this makes the English actually make think they're making progress because they see a lot of dead Irish. Yeah. And they write letters, um, Bagner writes a letter back to Fitzwilliam in Dublin going, essentially this rebellion is crushed because we killed 300 of them, scattered their forces. Job well done. And nothing says success like a lot of it, like Irish blood, but it's an absolute facade. O'Neill is quite happy to squander these old style troops to give them another year. And the campaign breaks up because they think the job's done. And O'Neill's got another year. The campaign the season's over and O'Neill's got another year to build up his forces to suppress the Queen's Irish clans in East Ulster and get a free run. There's even one mentioned it in camp. Pretty, After uh, the battle, that, that O'Neill had actually spurred his own men to charge on these, his own cavalry, and apparently they didn't charge immediately, and that's how O'Neill gets wounded, he gets speared in the leg. And you can almost imagine that his own troops are going, what, these are no, the confusion? Yeah. And after the battle, uh, this night captain says, O'Neill is furious with them because, like, almost like you do what I tell you to do, and you you can see the confusion in the writing. And, uh, but that's how cold and calculating it was. That's what it would do. That's what it would do to maintain even just the deception. Yeah, that's pretty um, Machiavellian of him, I suppose. But, it's pretty cold. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's ice cold, I suppose. How does Tyrone, how is he able to form such a formidable army and support network in the face of, well, the British army, you know, which obviously is much better funded, much better supplied, much bigger. How is he able to mm-hmm. create such a force? Just as a point of note, well, not say British, not to say English. Yeah, sorry, because, sorry. Because you got to for Scotland's actually really important to this. Very um, much so. And for our section, they're almost allied. It's certainly the, uh, they turn a blind eye, but we'll, we'll get to that. What Tyrone does is he has Spanish captains, he also has English captains. Uh, and we know that the story that O'Neill was allowed to keep troops and train them to keep order for the crown. But what he does is he cycles troops through this training regime. So the way he only has 600, he is sending people through that he ends up with like a, a large, like thousands, three or four thousand trained troops. But not only that, 
he breaks with tradition. Normally in Irish society, only landed people, people of uh, even lesser mobility were allowed to fight. So the majority of people didn't have to fight. They had no obligation to fight. And um, what he does is he gives the opportunity to allow. He doesn't force them. He doesn't compel them. But he allows, as for want of a better word, the churls, you know, the agricultural laborers, the train as troops. He brings in, like, like I've already said, he brings in weaponsmith from Scotland, and he starts gunpowder manufacture in Dungannon. He also sets up a trade network coming from Scotland, so there's a huge amount of supplies come from Scotland, uh, and he has, on familiar terms with James VI of Scotland, who turns a blind eye to all this. He's a lot of strongly worded letters sent from London, going, why are you letting this happen? And he goes, oh, no, no, and he actually makes some decrees. Uh, James VI makes decrees of, oh, no arms are to be sent to the Irish, but the fact is nothing is done in this. Possibly the most, uh, Tyrone gets most of his arms and ammunition from Scotland. It's actually vital to maintaining the army. So he builds up this force using English and Spanish captains and uh, Irish uh, officers that have actually served in, uh, in the, on the continent. But he also modernizes it. He takes on everything he has learned and his officers have learned and certainly what the English officers have learned. You always see, it's actually almost romantic, you know, people like this romantic image you of know, the Irish cairn, the light Irish troops uh, with spears and javelins and the gallow glass, so people love the gallow glass with their, uh, their axes and their uh, male armour. Uh, Tyrone totally does away with that. The army he puts together is entirely different. He swaps his cairn and gallow glass with their axes and their spears and swords, and he swaps it for a modern pike and shot army. This uh, so-called military revolution that was happening in continental Europe, this gunpowder revolution, where uh, you have long pikes, uh, 15, 16 foot pikes, surrounded by uh, firearm, armed troops. That's, most people call them muskets, but muskets are actually a specific type. They're a heavy weapon. You know, have these calibers, which are a lighter yeah. type of weapon, a lighter firearm, and transforms his troops into these. But what he doesn't do, he doesn't slavishly copy what's happening because he'd seen what happened when the Irish did just copy that, certainly in um, 1589. And the O'Flaherty's and Connop had done that. They'd taken... Spanish troops from the Armada and Spanish arms from the Armada and trained their troops identically to what the Spanish were fighting. They had no big central pike block, firearms, all the rest of that. But then when they were engaged by the English, they were fighting these things in the continent for years. And so they knew how to fight these. They knew how to fight and win against pike blocks and firearm armed troops. And they win. They, 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 get, they get hammered. So what Tyrone does is he takes the strengths of this and he combines it with Irish strength of mobility and speed. And he creates, rather than copying identically, which, say if you had 100 troops, which would make up an infantry company, and if it was an English-style one, he'd say have half of them would be armed with pikes, he'd have 50 pikemen, and the other 50, he'd have, say, 20 armed with muskets, the heavy muskets, and then 30 armed with calibers. Tyrone doesn't do that. Tyrone takes his army, and 80% he arms with calibers. It's, it's, it's the gun show here um, when we're talking about the Irish redevelopment. And 20% would be armed with pikes. And then occasionally he would actually scale back and he'd have some uh, targeteers or these swordsmen 
that would form like uh, almost like close protection for the, the firearm arm troops. And uh, what he does is then this is very light and mobile and quick. And he actually has, per company, has more officers per company than the English. So that there's a flexible, a tactical flexibility per company, per, per uh, unit of infantry that the English don't have. And rather focusing on great lines of battle that would have been typical, and uh, not even typical, but would have been seen as the ideal form of warfare. He creates this fast mobile force that uses skirmishing to check and then break units, and then they're destroyed by the Irish cavalry. So he combines the both to create a hybrid-type warfare, and he doesn't have a problem with pulling back, or the, the whole point is about tactical flexibility. And people say, they almost pejoratively say, but the Irish are just skirmishing, just skirmishing. Um, we're talking like skirmishing, this isn't just like people taking pot shots, you know, like you're, you're, you know, when people say skirmishing, they, they think of people hide behind trees and taking a shot here and we shot there. It's not actually, um, officers at the time um, were well aware that it was one of the, actually the terms that they used, that any troops can be used to win a battle, but it takes veterans to win skirmishes. So actual skirmishing troops need to have a much higher level of ability and confidence and weapons handling and wheelcraft than normal troops. And that's what he creates, an army that can do this, an army that can fight detached, that you don't need to keep in well, tight central masses like the English had to do. And that meant when they engaged the English in the field, they had a level of speed and tactical flexibility that they just, the English just could not cope with. And that was, that was their strength. That's what he created. And that's for most, for that whole section of the war from 1593 up to 1600, the English just could not get their head around so every time they were meeting. If the English had the advantage, the Irish just withdrew and pulled back until they had the advantage because why press a losing position? And yeah. that was why they win. That's how they kept winning. And it took until Mountjoy for them to keep learning these hard lessons. But Mountjoy learned that lesson and worked on it. And that's how they started winning because Mountjoy, they always say that the Irish copied the English. That's actually a fallacy. What happens is this hybridized Irish what type of warfare was actually copied by the English and it's only then that the English started the win. That's interesting. So you were saying there that throughout the, the Nine Years' War, the Irish are kind of known as ambushers or skirmishers and they never really meet the English army on the field. But sorry, at the Fort of Biscuits, Clontibret, Yalaford, Curlew Pass, that's a different story as well. Oh yeah, it's an absolute fallacy that they say, um, they say the Irish are they never fought in hard ground. But then you actually look at the records and there's time and again um, uh, so John Norris who mentioned earlier he gets hit um, at a place called Mullabrack coming out of Armagh and in his dispatches he said this isn't the Irish army we fought before they fought us on hard ground where there was neither bog nor bush and he, he, he his eyes are open he's like there's, there's something wrong here and again at Clontibret they fight them they actually write back saying this isn't what we're used to this is something totally different and there's time and again there's evidence where they fight them on hard ground in the open but again this is the legacy of people like Cyril Falls writing in the 50s 
that they just worried about this skirmish and then they're like, no hit and run. Oh, God forbid, just, oh, the, the very term they keep using is guerrilla warfare. This isn't guerrilla warfare. This is um, a, a term that uh, is coined later in Chinese warfare. It's a, a mixed warfare where you have large formations, but you also have smaller formations. And the English actually read about this, that how the, the, the operational strategy is only with deploying raids and small forces backed up by larger forces. And what the English are faced with was, do we scatter our forces to chase the raids, which means we can't contend with the, the large forces, or do we can concentrate our forces to deal with the large, you know, to check the large force mm-hmm. and then ignore the raid? So they're stuck in this lose-lose situation that no matter what they can't face the threat because they can't do both at the same time and O'Neill knows it and that's how he constantly has them wrong-footed throughout the war and it's it's only in retrospect to get to watch it and you go my god this is an amazing level of sophistication an unrecognized level of sophistication but it's not guerrilla warfare the closest thing we would call it uh, later uh, warfare would be partisan warfare where you have small units, but they're not irregular. They're not, and God, don't use the word insurgents. I've seen that so much in Australia and the Apple <laughs> They're not the regular paired troops used in a regular fashion, but to serve a broader regular strategy. And they say that it's anything different actually is, is, is misunderstanding and demeaning it slightly. Yeah, I'll have and, to. I'm and, and missing the sophistication. Yeah, I'll have to put my hands up there. And uh, yeah, when I talked about the Battle of Kinsale and talked about the you know the background and the, of the Nine Years' War, I did mention that they were ambushing a lot. So I'll put my hands up and say I'm, I'm wrong there. I, I know that you corrected me. You corrected me anyway. You sent me a message uh, uh, when we were uh, emailing. But yeah, yeah. So just for the record, yeah, I was 100% wrong no, on that. It's, it's easy, though. And then it, it's, people always use the word ambush. So it's even in um, later wars, it's just, to say, oh, but they're ambushed. And I said, like, ambushed the yellow board. And it's like, right, let's break it down here. Mm. They knew where the Irish were, yeah. They could see the Irish, yeah. They marched towards the Irish, yeah. They faced them head on and they fought it out, yeah. And they broke and ran, yeah. So how, extend again, how is Yeah. Um, Sounds like a pitch battle to me. Yeah, I, I remember talking to um, one of my professors in Queens, and he said, I, I think when they were writing uh, the early, the first attempts for uh, Irish historians to write this, uh, Irish War, it was almost they were using it in terms of the Irish War of Independence and flying columns. That they, it would almost create you know, like a, uh, a connection between the two, you know, like this long tradition of the, 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 the Irish War of Independence is actually just the latest step in the long tradition of Irish guerrilla warfare. Right, right. So therefore, creates continuity. More it's not, it's not the same, really. Yeah. It makes a nice story and, and resonates with people that were doing you know, this is being written for at the time. But the, the connection isn't really there. It's very interesting how that ambush, hit and run, guerrilla tactics idea has resonated and just stuck around for so long. Oh, people love it. And, and it's why people, a lot of people read history to resonate with those things that they know. But the reason why I wrote this was to challenge that and go, hold on a sec here. This was, it's almost like an Irish Renaissance that one of my theories of why this whole thing sort of fell down the historical cracks is that 
what Tyrone did, well, for one, for a large section, it was the Queen's Man, so he doesn't fit your nationalist hero mm-hmm. mold very well. You sort of have to hammer it a wee bit. It's a bit like the whole Grace O'Malley thing, of the, the great nationalist heroine of yeah. the West, but yet in the Nine Years' War, actually, her and hers actually fought for the English. But, uh... I did not know that. Oh, yeah, Grace O'Malley was, um, and her son actually campaigned for Well, Grace didn't use far too old, but um, the O'Malley's uh, certainly fought for the English um, at the last stages of the war. They sort of sat in the fence a wee bit and did a bit of business with O'Neill during the period of success. But yeah, they were definitely for the crown by a lot of stages. Wow, Grace O'Malley. I know. I'm going to get hung up on a reel by the end of it. <laughs> no, no, definitely, definitely not. That's interesting. That's I love when, when those facts challenge the, the common belief or con- misconceptions. That's amazing. Wow. Oh, yeah, I'm not judging it. Like, don't oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Don't tell me that. Um, no, no, no. Because it was a matter of, like, a real politics by the end of the war that of course. people were having, people didn't want to be on the losing side. Yeah, yeah. But, but the, how does it create this icon of you know, nationalist resistance towards English rule? It's like, no, there's sort of pretty clay there. Um, but again, that's why this whole period, I think, falls between the cracks of, you always get this polarizing sort of nationalist unionist interpretation of history, uh, certainly in the North, <laughs> as you might have noticed, where you would get this, well, the unionist perception would be, well, we had to come and civilize the Irish, so therefore the whole plantation thing was a good thing. So you, you, they have this Irish primitive needing to be civilized. On a nationalist perspective, they would create this primitive army that resonated with their images of Cucullin and know this old the armies of myth, know the heroes of myth. So they're happy to have their primitive sword-wielding, shield-wielding warriors, not soldiers, warriors, and that feeds into it. But what Tyrone created in reality didn't fit any of that mould, and so it doesn't suit either nationalist or unionist narrative. So it sort of it steps down the cracks and no one talks about it. So what I was trying to do is pull this back up and go, actually, no, this is what this was. This was a native Irish sort of modernising, flexible adaptable, not this moribund dying thing that you know, some historians have believe that you know, Irish culture was stuck and immovable and inflexible and dying, whereas what I was trying to show that the overarching theme of what I wrote was that this was a dynamic, flexible, modernizing deal that got truncated by defeat. And once they were defeated, then the narrative starts to get written, even just at the end of the war. Like, you, during the war, you have letters coming from English captains. One actually um, came from a guy that he got sent from the Low Countries, and he's writing to a friend in England, and he said, these aren't the primitive savages that they're telling us in England and on the continent. These are good, well-trained, disciplined, better troops than we have. And it comes as a great surprise to them, even at the time. But then by the time the Irish are in defeat, then you start getting this narrative again that starts talking about axes and cairn and primitives. And again, it's a deliberate thing because they create this people in need of civilization or civilizing, and nothing's like a bit of civilizing. 
they're obviously need civilized if they're primitive. So this modern Gale, this adaptive Gale, just disappears from history. Okay, so that's from 1593 up until we talked when Mountjoy shows up in 1600. Throughout the war, Tyrone is looking for Spanish help. And eventually, September, late September, 1601, the Spanish show up. The misconception is that the Spanish got blown all the way down there and O'Neill, O'Donnell and their men had to march all the way from north to south and save the Spanish to get their help. But was it not a case that there were pre-arranged locations depending on the size of the Spanish army? Whether it was 6,000 uh, or more, they would be sent down to Munster where they would be able to be fed and uh, supplied and O'Neill's allies down there would be able to help them. If it was a smaller force, it was to be sent in between Galway and Limerick. And if it was a, a force of around 2,000, they would land somewhere up and around Sligo, Ballyshannon, maybe uh, even a little bit further north. My own idea was that I think it was a plan we were saying that um, Tyrone had marched all the way to Mon- Munster at the start of 1600. And I think it was because he saw a conceal. And I think it was a plan that was put in place then. Because under the, by 1600, Tyrone can march into Munster unchecked. And he has his uh, allies with James Fitz Thomas and uh, the McCarthy's. And if you look at it then, Munster is the perfect place to land. Because Munster, there's practically no English control. It's a very productive uh, part of the country where you can support a large force of Spaniards. But by the time they get there, everything has changed. In the time 1600 to 1601, Carew has pacified Munster. All the main Irish lords have been captured. Uh, Fitzgerald, James Thomas and McCarthy are both taken in. Uh, George Carew, love them or them, does a fantastic job with a very, very, very limited amount of troops and suppresses the Irish in Munster from 1600 to 1601. Also, you've got to remember that Mountjoy had made major inroads in the, the Midlands and Ulster by this stage as well. And Tyrone was very much on the back foot. Very much on the back foot. So even though they say it was the turning point, it was a turning point because it, as much as Mountjoy was a bit of a gambler and betting it all on conceal. It was very much Tyrone's last throw of the dice as well because Mountjoy had got the landing in Docker's Landing in Derry on the foil in May uh, 1600. He got Irish lords like O'Doherty and Algarve O'Donnell to come on board and O'Donnell was really in a bad way by this stage. Uh, like when he marched out to conceal, he had to, he was betting it all because there was nothing good to go back to. And remember, after the defeat, he goes to Spain because he, he's got nothing to go back to in Tyrone. He's broke there. Right. And Tyrone has already got English forts on the Blackwater. And uh, Chichester's making his inroads uh, from Carrick Fergus. And so, so really, even though they say this is where it turned, 
Mountjoy and his associates had already did all the hard, the heavy lifting and the groundwork. That once you pushed in the door, no, this, uh, this Hitler often quoted, no, you push in the, the, the whole rotten edifice would happen. That's busy. If you got to conceal a defeat of that size much, much earlier, it would have been a different thing because there, was, there would have been capacity to deal with that level of defeat. But because the Irish were so much in the back foot, by the time conceal happened, they couldn't absorb that level of defeat. But I think the plan was a plan that was made during times of success and because of the friction, limited levels of communication over that intervening time that they didn't change the plan. And that's what happens. But again, Conceal is actually a different one because two of the greatest people I talk about Conceal would be uh, Damien Shields and Harm Morgan. And I remember we um, met up there a few years ago and we walked the fields and oh, we still couldn't agree. We just... Uh, but we are all historians, so uh, uh, I think it's actually our job not to agree to the truth. But we still actually uh, argue over, well, when I say argue, I mean discuss forcefully over exactly the meaning of conceal and why it happened and how it happened. Um, but yeah, but like I said, it's, that's my take on it. And then, of course, you have the whole the nature of Irish leadership. Uh, is very much based on perception of power and Tyrone's people's perception of Tyrone have been shaken by my joy success and so when it came to conceal when the defeat happens that authority that ability to command is shattered for Tyrone and that can't be put back together and then it will realise they don't want to be on the losing side and then it, it, it all slides away from there. That and all the Scottish supplies dry up as well. Again, I've, I've discussed this with Harm before, and they just a theory of mine, is that while this the whole war now could be seen as a proxy war for the Spanish, who are busy getting their own back, Philip the second and Philip the third are getting their own back on the English for the English interfering in what the Spanish see as their business in the Low Countries. What you can also see is that number saying that uh, James VI is turning a blind eye to arms shipments, and without the Scottish arms shipments, Tyrone could not have kept this war going because people need paid and guns need gunpowder and lead to shoot it, yeah. and everything else goes with that. And this is all coming out of Scotland. They were getting in places. Uh, there was uh, English merchants in Ireland selling to the Irish. And there were certainly Spanish arms shipments, but I think the day-to-day workday workhorse of supply was coming out of Scotland. And James VI is quite happy for this to happen. But James is only one side. Remember, Elizabeth hasn't gotten there. And there's two major um, competitors for that. One is James VI in Scotland, and the other one is the Infanta Isabella in Spain, or in the Low Countries. And if he can keep this Spanish proxy war going in Ireland, and allow this to, no, allow the Irish to keep supplies coming out of Scotland, as long as the English are fighting the Spanish, our Spanish proxy war in Ireland, they are never going to accept a Spanish heir to the English throne. 
And James VI takes this as a real threat to his succession to the throne. Is this Spanish threat? So as long as he can keep the Spanish his enemies, there's no way the English are going to accept that. And then once he gets the Cecils, this is basically one of the most powerful families in England, the Cecil family. Once he gets a confirmation in 1602 that when Elizabeth dies, he's going to get the crown. As soon as that happens, all of a sudden, the Scottish supplies get cut off. All of a sudden, there's arrests made in Glasgow and people are put on trial for supplying. They are actually, you know, they've been supplying them for, like, since the start of the war. Then there's nothing, that, once that supply is cut off, it's done. There's nothing for, Tyrone can't recover. There's politically, militarily, and logistically, it's a dead end. And there's, there's no way to recover. So let's talk about the Battle of Kinsale then. Okay, so let's let's. Do you want to just give a, a short description of of what happens? Kind of the whole Spanish are holed up inside. Okay, well, well you have the Spanish land in sixteen oh one, and they get uh, essentially Mountjoy moves very quickly to pen the Spanish land force under Aguila in the Conceal, and he builds up English force. This is what England does very well is they have naval power and they can concentrate force and concentrate large amounts of force and artillery and keep them in the field. That's that's one of the big English strengths. And so this plays the English strength and they can ship in a huge amount of troops and supplies and they create this besieged the Spanish inside Conceal. And so the Irish are forced to march south. Now Tyrone they always say that Tyrone there's equivocates and takes too much time getting there. I would suggest that Tyrone actually starts raids in the pale uh, around Dublin. And what he's doing is he's trying one of his old tactics. Remember we're saying he did the Burr when Burr was on the Blackwater? Is that he raids in his rear lines, forcing them to withdraw? Mountjoy doesn't take the bait. Mountjoy says himself, he says, we will win here and Ireland will be ours. Or we will, Tyrone will win and Ireland will be his. He's betting it all. On conceal, so no matter what Tyrone does, he can't he, he can't force my joy away. So he's got to go down and try and break through and uh, relieve the Spanish. So they do start Tyrone and O'Donnell and all, muster all the force they can in Cork. And what the plan is again, the plan is meant to be that he will attack the English lines, and as the English forces are drawn away, then Aguila will attack out. Now, Gila had been attacking out throughout the siege. He'd done these spoiling raids. Like, I think it's when people write about it. Obviously, the best book about it is Harris' book, um, The Battle of Conceal. It goes into detail. But in a lot of the other narratives, and including my own, unfortunately, the level of space allowed, I mean, you can't go into the detail of it. But certainly when I put those tweets out day by day, during November and uh, December and October, and all you realise that there's actually a lot going on. And there is a lot of sallies out of Conceal and attacks and attempts to spike guns and fighting in the round the outland forge but essentially Tyrone and his allies are forced to act uh, and that's where we get this movement of, I'll stick to call it on Christmas Eve because of the whole difference in the Gregorian calendar and all yeah, that yeah, yeah. well say it's Christmas Eve 1601 Tyrone is forced to move uh, moves his troops forward then when Mountjoy releases troops to face O'Neill or Tyrone Tyrone then falls back from his initial position uh, with, uh, and has a bog in his front because Tyrone, throughout the war, 
always took serious precautions with the English horse. The English horse are probably one of the most powerful things on the Irish battlefield. They're armoured lancers at this stage. They, 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 they carry a lance. Technically, they would call light horse, but certainly by the Irish standards, they were wearing a cuirass and armour and helmets, fighting with lances and pistols. There was very little Tyrone had to face them. He had his pikes were a fallback, but the, he always made precautions, like in landscapes, like in the yellow Ford, he would have cut the great trench to cut off the English cavalry, or the Moray Pass in 1600, he would have had the barricades that again would have neutralised the English cavalry. He was always being careful not to let the English cavalry run rampant. So again, I see here he falls back, probably trying to use the bog as a buffer, but the English cavalry actually find another forward and cross an attack on an English flank and rout the Irish cavalry. Now, the Irish cavalry are formed of the nobles, the elite of Native Irish society, but they haven't been reformed. Only he tries to reform them. Certainly, we mentioned during the war that he had armed his cavalry, or an armed section of his cavalry, like the English cavalry, with armour and lances and all the rest of that, I'd imagine, probably some firearms. But just changing the technology doesn't work. It doesn't change the way they fight. The Irish cavalry are very much a, a pursuit-type cavalry. They're not... They, they don't charge home. It's not the way they fight. So it doesn't take that much effort at all for the English cavalry to scatter them. Then the story goes that as they pulled back, they disordered Tyrone's main battle, which, of course, he's put his troops together in probably in the Spanish direction. There's this large mass of troops probably copying what the Spanish called a tercio, but essentially a large, dense pike stand surrounded by uh, firearms troops. And that's not the way Tyrone's troops are meant to fight. They're not armed that way. I remember saying about 80% of them with firearms. You, to have a strong defense for one of those large formations, you need a large central core of pike, which he doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Either he doesn't have it, it doesn't go into detail how it's structured, but either he doesn't have it, or he's armed a large amount of troops pikes that aren't meant to be pikemen. Either way, his army is instructed to fight this way. So when the Irish cavalry route through them and disorder them, the English exploit this disorder and it's that's the moment that's in all battles uh, of this type. Whenever one side disorders mm-hmm. and that disorder is exploited, that's when the killing starts, that's when the writing starts and that's when the formations collapse. And that collapse is exploited by the English cavalry and the English infantry, and then the, the whole position deteriorates and collapses, and they harshly ride from the field. Because um, you got to actually remember, O'Donnell isn't even engaged. O'Donnell's largely, it doesn't even get the fight. But once that's collapsed, and then they, they, they ride them from the field, in fact, they get away easier because they say the English cavalry couldn't pursue them, because the English cavalry were in such a poor condition, sitting in this winter siege, that they couldn't actually pursue, and that's actually pursuits is actually when most of the killings done about. So they get away with about taking about a thousand killed on the field, and then you got all the abandoned arms, and then Aguila. He the, he didn't actually realize that this was the actual fight. Actually, he says he says not the fight, but he doesn't actually come out of conceal until the wrong time. But by then, it's done. Our throne returns to his camp. And even though he hasn't lost a huge amount of men, he's lost probably what, a thousand men of a force of six thousand. But you you can't reuse a beaten army. You can't just throw them back in the field again. 
And so the decision is quickly taken to return north. And in the the, the, the march north, that's where he's turned on by all the people that they mentioned about the people who cheered them going, turn on them on the way back. But it because again, news travels quickly that O'Neill's been routed. And people don't want to be on the losing side. And nothing says I'm on the crown side is like by having a, no, by local Irish lords, is they have a crack at O'Neill's troops when they're uh, marching north. And O'Neill loses more men in the march north than he does in the battle. But the mystique, the image, perception of O'Neill, the Turin's power shattered. And that's more damaging than any loss of troops, even though he has lost a huge amount of his, his veterans. And then all that combined with everything I was saying about you know, the break cutting off of supplies, is there's, there's no there's no way to recover. And then of course, as he leaves the field, then of course the Spanish have little option but to negotiate. But you also have to remember, it's not it's not just about lost troops, because if you actually do just do the numbers, the army that lost the most troops at Conceal was the English. They, they lost six to 7,000 down in the trenches. The Spanish didn't have anything like that. And of course, the Irish didn't lose anything like that. But the English can recover and the English can uh, capitalize on on what's been done. Whereas the Irish can't, the Irish have no way back. Also, what all Tyrone can do is try and outlast the Queen, to tell you the truth. And so that's when it goes into the whole phase of the famine. My joy, well, for one thing, my joy can't go straight north because he's got to deal with the Spanish. And then he gets really, really sick. And he's out of action for about a month, trying to recover in Dublin. So there's this hiatus. Well, there's a pause while the Spanish are got out and out of Ireland and my joy recovers. Then my joy turns his attention to the north and returns in 1602. And that's where you get the famine starts in Ulster. And you see the collapse of Irish agriculture in Ulster. And then you have the depredation of the charmers like Sir Arthur Chichester, who's busy attacking and killing everything and anything he gets hands on. And then it's just a waiting game. It's nothing left to be done. The position collapses in Munster as well, the, the, the McCarthy's, the O'Sullivan Bears that rose with the Spanish landing. They're defeated, and then uh, O'Sullivan Bear has a great march from uh, Dunboy and the Connacht of the, in 1602. But it's, it's just becomes of just the Irish position collapses and the English can do what the English can do best is they feed in more troops and then their success breeds more alliances with Irish lords and then it's just this descent into awfulness in 1602 where you have just the famine destroys tens of thousands in the north and yes it was there was a scourge there strategy used by Mountjoy which is often people will look at and say this is some sort of exceptional level of brutality in uh, Ireland. It's actually not. This is a standard thing in continental Europe. Certainly the Duke of Alba was more than happy to use it against the low countries. And it's often been blamed for causing the famine, but I don't think it caused the famine. I think when he started um, cutting down crops in Ulster, normally they expected these sort of things to take effect in six months, eight months, a year's time. You started to see the effects of the famine two months after he started doing that. And it's happening in places like um, when he finally crosses the Blackwater in the Dungannon, they're seeing a place that's wasted, it's destroyed. You know, and it, what, what it is, it's an agricultural collapse that's underway by 
so many years of war that Irish agriculture can't support it anymore and it starts to collapse. So the, the famine's already underway. I'm saying Mountjoy did make it worse. I can guarantee you that. But he didn't cause it. And you have to remember that by the time you get into 1603, 1604, the famine is island-wide. It just started in Ulster because that's where you know, the military pressure was. That's where the campaign armies were. But the famine was all Ireland by 1604. And you can't blame my that one. That was just an agricultural collapse. It does, it does make an awful lot of difference to the people that died in it. But it yeah, does yeah, certainly when people are looking to ascribe blame yeah. or find the bad guy, which people always want to find the bad guy. But as much as it would annoy my uh, Republican-leaning father in his grave, he would be very annoyed at me for letting the English off the hook. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, I've got to work with him. He'd be like, no, it was all Mountjoy's fault. So you mentioned there that both Tyrone and his Irish Confederates, they're also on the back foot from 1600 right up until 1601. But mm-hmm. so is Mountjoy, in a sense that this, this is one big gamble. So if the Battle of Kinsale went the Irish way, does the war end then for an Irish victory? Or do you, the English, like they had done before, they just send in more troops, send in more troops, send in more troops with a new leader? I never like getting into counterfactual history, but we'll yeah. give it a crack. The the best thing that, that should have been done, it, it was a word of could have should have, but O'Neill Tyrone should have waited another week. The English were down in such numbers that they couldn't, and, they, and they'd already said that the horse were busy on their last gas, that if they waited till most of the English horse had died in the camps, they wouldn't have had that shock arm for attacking the, the Irish. The English troops were down by the dozens every night. They could have let the Irish winter do for them because there was no shortage of supplies and conceal. Conceal, there was no... Uh, Major had already disregarded any option for uh, assaulting conceal. So yeah, if they'd waited a bit longer, I think that would have given the edge. But they didn't and that's what that's that's just what happened. What would have happened if if the English position had collapsed? I'd say the Irish lords would have again done what happened when they see who's winning. They would have jumped on board and joined Tyrone. And I'd say you probably would have lost. There was already issues of the loyalty about decisions like Cork because Cork had already stopped sending supplies to Mountjoy. They were mm-hmm. sitting on the fence. Limerick was already. A hotbed of uh, what way is this going to go? I'd say you would have said that uh, once they've seen that the major, the last big English thrust had been defeated, you probably would have had the Irish, well, far more Irish, far more of the uh, old English, the Catholics would have actually came on board just because that was the way the wind was blowing. It was real politics being the winning side. And then if it had still managed to drag on, until uh, Queen Elizabeth died, only would have cut a deal with James, probably, because James is quite the let's-make-a-deal sort of guy. He would have ended up with uh, Tyrone getting what he wanted, which was primacy and Ulster. He didn't want all this idea of O'Neill with Tyrone being King of Ireland. That's nonsense. It would never happen. The, the Earl of Ormond wouldn't have went for it. O'Donnell wouldn't have went for it. All the big Irish families wouldn't have went for it because he's an important Irish lord, but he's not. There's, there's no suggestion for a second they would accept him as king they would have accepted someone else. They, they still believe in the primacy, you know, the, 
of, of kings. They, they were, this wasn't an effort to become sort of like nascent Irish Republic. All they wanted to do was to swap one sovereign for another. They didn't want an English Protestant sovereign. And that was the end of it. They, they were quite happy to replace it with a Spanish Catholic sovereign. But to tell you the truth, they probably would have went for James as well. Just as long as, because this is, though it was later framed as a crusade for uh, the rights of the Catholic Church and Catholicism in Ireland, ultimately what they were trying to do from at the start was secure their privileges, their rights, their power. When Tyrone was trying to convince people to join him in the South, he was aiming it mostly at the old English Catholics, then it's framed in terms of religion. When he was trying to convince the Irish lords and officer at the start, no mention of religion. It's all about the patrimony, the privileges, and their rights of the elite. Yeah, just tell them what they want to hear. Anything. Yeah, exactly. Even though he used many, many uh, religious uh, terms you know, to persuade um, the old English in the mid part of the war, I think, it, again, it was just a means to an end. Um, I don't think Tyrone was really that religious at all. In fact, one of the best times, even though I would be quite scaling of um, the art of ethics, one of the best, uh, most prescient things he said was uh, when he met with Tyrone after Borderlands and he asked Tyrone why he did this and Tyrone said it was a matter of religious freedom and the art of ethics scoffed at him and said, uh, Tyrone, you busy care for religion as much as my horse does. And I think that's quite, <laughs> that's quite a, a decent uh, assessment of uh, Tyrone's attitude to religion. So that didn't happen. The Irish didn't win. Tyrone didn't get the primacy of the North. And the war dragged on, as he said. And it just gets worse and worse. Ends up with the Treaty of Mellifont. Mm-hmm. But the Treaty of Mellifont isn't as bad as you would expect it to be, is it? The Treaty of Mellifont's really quite a winner, actually. Um, they always say, yes, Tyrone does go through all this theatrics of prostration and all that stuff. This is all for optics. This is, as has been pointed out, this is after several days of hard bargaining. And Tyrone had already said that when he was asking to submit, he'd already put in this caveat that, like, don't be too hard on me because you may force me to leave the country and seek another prince. And what he's saying is, if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to leave the country, go to Spain, raise another army and come back here and cause more trouble in this war to keep on going. So this isn't the uh, submission of like some broken husk of a man. This is a man who's still playing the game he's been playing ever since he started playing the game. And uh, so, of course, after the hard bargain, essentially he gets, it's back to the start, no, where he was at the start. Yes, there's some controls on Irish lords that know Odom, that, that were under him, but um, it's pretty much a reset because what he says is quite right. Is that, uh, and Mountjoy knows it because Mountjoy knows that, that the Queen's dead and Tyrone doesn't. But Tyrone finds out that James is there. The whole fact is that Tyrone didn't rebel against James. Tyrone is not a traitor anymore because there's a new sovereign who he's been quite pally with for the last <laughs> 10 years. So yeah, ultimately they've got to get the deal done and the deal done is almost a reset. And the inevitable where people always say, well, you see it in these shortened histories or certainly you get to see it in Wikipedia and things like that, uh, which we try and change as we go along, but it's slow going. 
where you see narratives say the Tyrone was defeated in the Nine Years' War and left for the continent. He didn't leave for the continent. No. He gets pretty much back what he wanted. A lot of the people who were allied to the Crown, like Niall Garve O'Donnell, they get it in the neck. They don't get what they wanted. And O'Donnell's successor becomes the Ireland O'Connell. And there's people raging in England. There's people writing, we've been fighting this, these Irish traders for 10 years or, or since the war started. And then it, they pretty much get everything back again. There's absolute astonishment in England. But that's what they had to do. That's what they did. And and, and Tyrone gets a very good deal. In fact, the Irish Lords get a very good deal. It's, yes, it is a submission, but it's a submission worth taking, to tell you the truth. Because it's, it's almost like no harm, no foul. Uh, and a lot of the English are very unhappy about that, but it's a, that's, that's the way it ended. It's only much later, and the political machinations that happen after the war is where you get the flight of the yards. And everything that happened after that in plantation. But that was in the future. That was in no way an inevitability either. Certainly, the end of the war is, yes, the Irish are beaten, but the end of it is, it doesn't come across as defeat. It's certainly not unconditional surrender, as, as people would uh, like end. No, people nowadays are very used to neat ends of wars. They look at World War II, end of the war, they were beaten. That's how wars end. But it's not really how wars end back then. Not too clear cut and a bit woolly for modernized, you no. Know, but that's not the way the wars ended. Then. The wars didn't end like that, and certainly this one didn't. And it, so when people are writing it, they always extend it up to the flight of the earth, you no, know, because that's the ending. Mm-hmm. They see there's the cutoff, and that is the cutoff. But the the end of the if you're just looking at the war, the flight and the plantation is by no means in inevitability. Yeah, the Treaty of Elephant is certainly. It is a loss, but it's not the worst loss, you know. It's absolutely not. It's absolutely it's, not. Um, quite a nice deal. So then let's let's talk about that then, and the lead up to, and including the the flight of the arrows and what happened there. Well, I'll leave that to harm uh, and and the like. But ultimately, yeah, they, they they say that Tyrone was forced out. Well, Tyrone actually had quite a protector. He, he, he was shielded from a lot of the more and nastier political backlashes from the people who were not weren't happy with the end of the war by Mountjoy because he becomes the Earl of Devonshire and uh, moves on but he he doesn't actually last long he, he dies a few years later and so Tyrone is a major political protector and then other people like uh, Sir Arthur Chichester he becomes Lord Deputy and Chichester hates Tyrone and so they are going out of their way to try and find a way to make Tyrone a traitor, no, make it, find evidence or get anything that would be able to bring to the court and say, Tyrone is still a traitor, he needs executed, but they can't get the evidence. Also not helped by the fact that Tyrone is <laughs> still Tyrone, no, he does actually keep playing, trying to find a way to uh, start up the war again or to get you know, primacy, you know, what he was aiming for is still uh, on the cards because even when he, at the end of the war, when he accompanies Mountjoy into England to meet James after the submission, he's still sending letters to Spain to Philip III going, by the way, if you're thinking of sending more troops or starting another war, I'm your man. 
So if he actually hadn't still been playing that game, there's every possibility there would be no reason for a flight. But he did keep playing that game. And even though he didn't, even though the Chichester and his officers couldn't get the evidence that they needed, the fact was that Tyrone still knew he was doing things that would be considered as traitorous and actionable. So he didn't know they didn't know. But he was was still doing things. If he hadn't been doing anything, then there would have been no reason to fight because he, he knew there was no evidence if he hadn't been doing anything. But he was, and he did. And so, obviously, the flight was as much his own, because of his own actions as the actions of Chichester and his officers. So, yeah, he, because he was still playing, he was still fighting the war in his head and still looking for the outcome that he wanted, as opposed to just resigning himself to, well, we were beating the war, I got Muslim lands back, and no harm, no foul. Mm-hmm. But no, he had to keep going, he had to keep trying, and giving in for... Chichester uh, and the like to accuse him of uh, is he still traitorous actions even though they couldn't get the evidence the fact was he was still doing it and then with the flight of the Earls they head off to Europe hoping to get a sponsor Prince or King and it just doesn't happen it just doesn't happen because once Spain makes peace with England or Britain as now they're trying to do it because the, you've got the joining of the crimes because you have a James VI is now James I mm-hmm. of England, and they make peace with Spain. And once that happens, all the political interest is gone. Spain has no need of a war in Ireland. So why would they bother? It's all, like we say, everything is motivated by interest, and there is no Spanish interest. So, And even the war that they're having... The, the, the war was supplied. Every everything that supported the war isn't there. So the chances of Tyrone, even though he had to leave and he was looking to get back, everything that allowed him to have the war in the first place is gone. And yes, he they often have this broken image. You know, this image of the Tyrone in uh, essentially an open prison in Rome as this broken character, but I think the, certainly the work by McLean Carney Walsh has shown that um, Tyrone certainly wasn't, right, even right up to the end, was always trying to get back, always trying to reassert his interest in Ireland, but it just wasn't there anymore. It would, all the supports were gone, and so it was never going to happen. Yes, he was always trying it, but the, the chances of it ever happening again, it was all gone. There was no static support, there was no Spanish support. So it just wasn't going to happen. And ultimately, he ended up just end up staying in Rome until he died. What do you make of, or do you think there are the international effects of the Nine Years' War insofar as, I can't remember the name of that treaty between Spain and England or Britain. Uh, is it the Treaty of the Atlantic? Oh, I can't remember Because they are now allied, that gives Britain the chance to cross the Atlantic and not be interfered with the, by the Spanish Navy. So they're able to colonize America and set up Jamestown and, or parts mm-hmm. of it. Not sure, I believe we do, we don't. I'm not sure. Is where you have that whole laboratory for empire. And you know, they, they say that, that a lot of the same guys that um, were fighting Ireland end up over in the colonies in America. And they do a lot of the similar things and they fight in similar ways. But. Actually, personally, I always find that's more unhelpful thing for 
when we were writing this war, is that people then start equating the Irish with the Native Americans, and it becomes, you know, it forms this picture in their head. So actually, I find less issue with, you no, know, was it a little Bart Rampart? Well, it may or may not have been, but does it end up framing this war in people's heads by people going, well, they're fighting the natives in Ireland and they're fighting the natives in America and they're fighting them in a very similar way. And so then all of a sudden the Irish become Elizabeth's Indians and then that starts framing pictures in people's you know, heads and what we were saying earlier about how people perceive this war. And that's where I find this is a real pain is that it, it's, it becomes almost like a model for framing how people see the war. Uh, I remember um, many, many years ago when I was doing the work on the Yellow Fort, and um, there was an English guy who was writing a magazine article. He wrote the thing about the Yellow Ford and he wanted to call it Ireland's Isaldan Wana, so right. the defeat of the yeah, yeah, yeah. English in South Africa, or KwaZulu-Land. And it's like, hold on a sec here. How is this? Okay, yes, the English get defeated by a large force of natives. That's where the similarities change. I said, well, how do you mean? It's like, well, you can call this Ireland is on the Rwanda as long as the Zulus are armed with more guns than the Redcoats and have our, because essentially the Irish of the Elf Ward are more technologically sophisticated than English. Right. And they use more so. Uh, but yeah, they want this primitive, modern versus primitive narrative. Uh, and that's where this more affects how people see this. Uh, and that sort of drives me a bit distraction uh, sometimes because again it's always this the primitive idea. noble but doomed against modern technology sophisticated and it's like no that's not how you frame this at all that's not how it works right. and it's a really really stubborn idea the shift people just cling to it it's maybe because it's been gone so many years and a lot of the narrative has been anglocentric that that's just how they see it, because that's all that's been written. Um, but oh, it's, a, it's a hard thing to shift. And every time I ever talk about these things, I always try to, yeah, I've got to try and change how people see these things and how people are looking at it. There's a book, where was it? The Mere Irish of Ireland. Oh, there it is. It was The Mere Irish and Colonization Author. It's just written by a guy, uh, Jared Farrell. Fantastic book. He started engaging with us, how we write our history and how we see our history. And he took action. One of the, it's sort of like um, he was using the model from how people started writing Native American history. Is now writing it from not from the colonists' point of view, but from the natives. And it even affects the way the language we use about this. And I actually find myself looking at me and working, going, "My God, this, he's right." Actually, that we would even write things like Faye McHugh O'Byrne was a thorn in the crown side. Oh, right, yeah. It's like, like, hold on a sec here. No, actually, the crown was a real team in Faye McHugh. No, his lordships, no, it's always seen as no from the point of power, not from the... So you actually reverse it, you're going, oh, it totally changes your perception. That's actually a fantastic piece of work. It makes you reconsider everything the way you write it. But people are just conditioned it because that's what the body of work that's that's out there is written. And you have to totally shift the whole parameters the way you look at it. And you're like, yeah, that changes the way you look at that. Yeah. So then, why do you think, given the importance of the Nine Years' War, obviously some people say it's the end of Gaelic Ireland after the flight of the Earls, given mm-hmm. that it was so 
when Tyrone's army was so technologically advanced and certainly at certain times more advanced than the English army. But why is it then, in a sense, forgotten or not as well known? Um, I'd say it's because, like I was saying earlier, I remember the whole thing, it doesn't suit the narratives of nationalist or republican, or it doesn't, for nationalist or unionist narratives, it doesn't suit because it's got a, a modernising gale which doesn't suit anyone's image. Okay. So let's not just go there. I'd say also because the plantation that comes after it casts such a long shadow that it's almost like a gravity well that sucks all the attention. And so everything sort of slants towards seeing what affects it or how what came before it. So it sucks all the air out of the room, if that's just way of saying it, that people get look at the bigger thing, or, or as it presented, it, I wouldn't say it's a bigger thing, but certainly it has a, a longer effect, obviously, right into modern times, right into today. And so that's how it gets drawn away. And again, it doesn't fit, the Tyrone doesn't fit the nationalist hero narrative so he's an uncomfortable character to have and yes his goals were for his patrimony and his he he wanted to secure his rights but uh, as Harry Morgan said he wanted to secure his rights but to secure his rights he had to get secure everyone's rights by getting the English out but again it was an uncomfortable reason for it. No, it was to secure the elite. And so therefore you can't create this narrative that no, it seems like a modern narrative. It's not, it's, not, it's not a clear cut and it's complicated and it's messy. And it's like even you have great heroes like Brian O'Rourke and you say, oh, Brian O'Rourke, he, he, people say he fought to the end and he never surrendered. Uh, and died uh, after the war and never submitted. And it's like, well, yeah, that's true. And he fought longer than Tyrone, and he was actually in it from the start. But he also, through uh, a long and sorry affair in comic with O'Donnell, joined the English for about a year. He, he, he submitted to Conyers Clifford uh, and uh, was with the English for a while and then like rejoined the Irish cause. But still, like, it, it, it does uncomfortable messy bits that don't make for a nice clear cut brave hearty type narrative of good guys versus bad guys so um yeah and it is incredibly complex with different motivations and differing reasons and different levels of success and and, and it's ugly and the English sort of historical set don't really talk about it either because it didn't a lot of um History books in the period are written, obviously, from the Elizabethan period, and the Elizabethan English narrative doesn't like dealing with it. There was, like, there was a book written by a by Crookshank uh, called Elizabeth's Army. It was published in the 50s, and it's still actually regularly used. C.G. Crookshank. It deals with the development of the English army, uh, Elizabethan armies, and all Pike. If you want to read about Pike and Shot and development of, and all that sort of thing and modernising, it, it's the book that a lot of people go to, and you'll always see it in people's bibliographies. But when he was actually doing the campaigns of the English armies, you know, he deals with like citizens and recruitment, rations, uniforms, a lot. 
But then he gets to the end of it and he does a thing called the Three Campaigns and he does Scotland in the 1560s, France in 1589 and Spain in the Cadiz and then service abroad. He doesn't actually talk about Ireland at all. It just totally skips it. <laughs> Even though the fact that it was the largest commitment to Elizabethan troops anywhere yeah, outside yeah. England. And almost bankrupted the crown, cost two million pounds of yeah. upfront catchy money. Never mind you know, the, the economic losses and the losses of life. But it just gets deleted because it, 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 it's uh, an uncomfortable and horrible part of the no part of um, Elizabethan history, which she never saw the end of. With the advent of social media, do you mm-hmm. think it is important or necessary for historians like yourself? to be mm-hmm. online and have a visible presence. I know you do, uh, Damien Shields does, and many do, but do you think there's an, a need for it or an importance for it? Or do you think it's just good to have academia brought to the masses? I would say that it's a very good, an excellent thing that historians, they have a reputation for good or bad of Naval gazing, no, no, sitting in ivory towers and answering questions that no one asked. I would see the fact is that history has to be catered to what people want, that what people have an appetite for. Yes, there's a lot of stuff they don't even know they want, um, but when you bring it to them in an easy to read, non dense, non dense way that they can understand and appreciate benefit from that's your job as a historian your job as a historian isn't to go out and find out you know hidden truths or something like that and and, and then say how clever you are that's not what it's there for <laughs> you, essentially you're a public service to try and get across complex ideas in non-complex way which is why social media is so good why things like Twitter and all the rest of that people do it in different ways but the fact is like even Twitter where you have so many so few words to work with you've got to really boil it down and there's something that punches through you and in my case like I've had this crusade for years to try and change minds about how this period works that if you can actually boil down wee small nuggets a tiny wee bit at a time you can chip away and then someone else points it and someone else I remember having um, Sharon in an office uh, and I remember some colleagues one time I'll not say she was did the Irish have guns then? I was like yes they had guns <laughs> and, and then, then explain how they had more guns than everyone else and then it's, it's not that the fact they had guns it's how people perceive what early modern Ireland was and then if you actually change those perceptions not like everything else no history is interpreted through modern prisms so if it slightly changes how they think, and then that's a good thing. And certainly it'll help take away some of the old biases things, like where people will constantly say, well, the English did this, this, the English did that, the English did it. Like, well, actually, this is what happened. Yeah. I'm not saying it's good or bad, I'm not getting value judgments, but just so you can change that, then they go, all right. And that just changes their thinking a wee bit. But how could that be a bad thing? Yeah, for sure. Like you did that with me and Grace O'Malley just there earlier on as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's no harm to Grace. Like, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Not no, no. <laughs> no, I hate her now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a mural of her in my home. I'm throwing the fire. 
No. <laughs> but uh, that's that's brilliant, Jim. Give us a roundup books where we can find you in social media, your events, or any other information they could give us. Well, the events are all shot to hell because we're all oh, <laughs> yeah, from coronavirus. Um, but the books, um, the, the main book, um, uh, Nine Years War, uh, it's uh, available from uh, Four Courts Press. It's uh, sold uh, Nine Years War, 1593 to which some people are going, but that's 10 years. It's like, yes, mm-hmm. I'll say where it is, but I mentioned that in the book. It's available to all, good, all bookshops, all, all large bookshops, and online, anywhere where people buy books online, you can find it. And it's deliberately written to the non-historian because it was written just for historians. Well, then about 10 people would read it. It wouldn't change anything. There's also, I have a, a Twitter feed, but every day I'll put out a, a tiny tidbit of um, detail on the Year's War uh, on, a, on this day type format. Um, which actually ends up putting in some details that didn't make it into the book, just on pure word count. You can't, often in books that cover broad periods, you can't get tiny little vignettes, and that's where you feed them in through uh, a Twitter feed. Um, if you really uh, feel like digging in, I have a, a page uh, under my name on Academia, uh, and it'll go into other details. Like um, If you want to get into more details, um, that's all available online to download, uh, so you can fill your books. And if you really, really feel uh, like you've got to ask me more questions, just DM me on uh, Twitter, and I'm more than happy to actually have a chat. Brilliant. Dr. Jim O'Neill, thank you so much. That's me. So there you have it, folks. Dr. Jim O'Neill and the Nine Years' War. I don't know about you, but I thought that was fascinating. I learned so much talking to Jim. It was hard to cut that down to under two hours. Jim is definitely worth a follow on Twitter. His page really does have, as he says himself, some great little tidbits that didn't make it into his book, which I just bought as well, and it's a fascinating read. As for my Twitter page, you can find me at Ireland Battles. You'll also find me at The Irish at War on Instagram and the website, theirishatwar.com. So you'll find this podcast on SoundCloud and on iTunes, and please, it would be so beneficial for me if you were to like it, leave a review, which really helps this podcast gain a lot of visibility also don't forget you can become a patron of this podcast on patreon.com forward slash the irish at war you'll find the link on my homepage on my twitter and instagram thank you all so much for listening to this podcast and all the support on social media i can't really express how much it means to me that all of you really enjoy my posts and share it every day so thank you so much i should have a new episode out for next week And so until then, good luck.